The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I've enjoyed the worship tonight and especially uh, the hymn, which reminds us of the teaching in Galatians 3.13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Isn't that wonderful? You know, under the hymn title, sometimes there'll be a verse and the verse there was Galatians 3.13 that says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law uh, by becoming a curse for us. But you know, Christ has not, thank God, redeemed us from the blessing of the law. And the beauty of it is that the blessing of the law uh, is still vouchsafed to us through the blood of Christ. And what do I mean by that? I mean the beauty of the life that is lived according to the law of God. We're reminded in Romans chapter 8 that Christ came in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so uh, in Psalm 119, I was looking at this just as I was coming up, Psalm 119, verse 1 through 3, turn and look there if you would with me, reminds us of the incredible blessing of a life lived in obedience uh, to the commands of God. Psalm 119 says, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in all his ways. You have laid down precepts, they are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees, then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. And later in Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. And so we come to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, not as those under a curse. And in the commandment that we're looking at tonight, the second commandment, there is a curse. Uh, the implied curse for those that will not obey God, but that will worship him according to idols or will worship false gods, false deities. Uh, he pours out his wrath and his judgment. There are curses for those that will not obey, but blessings for those who do obey. Look, if you would now, to, at Exodus chapter 20, and we will read all the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to focus in on the Second Commandment tonight. Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, uh, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the Ten Commandments. Now tonight we're going to focus on the second commandment, verse 4 and following. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. Now this commandment comes to us concerning not just the object or focus of our worship, but the manner of it. God will command us in how we are to worship. It says in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, let us worship God acceptably for our God is a consuming fire. Well, what that means is that there is such a thing as acceptable worship and there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. It matters a great deal what is in your mind and what is in your approach and what you do with your body in worship. And so it will be later in, in the book of Exodus, a great deal of effort and energy will be spent. Many, many words written about the worship of Israel, about the establishment of the tabernacle, about how it is to be done, about how it's to be made. All of these commandments focused on worship. And therefore, I think it's important for us to realize how vital it is that we worship the Lord according to his dictates. From the very beginning, this has been a problem. I think that this was the issue with Cain and with Abel. It was Abel that brought a sacrifice according to the command of God, and it was Cain that figured out for himself how he was going to worship God. And God gave him a warning saying, Cain, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not also be accepted? And so it is that there is an acceptable worship. Cain did not follow the acceptable worship, but Abel did. And so as we come to this issue of idolatry, I think we come to the second great battle of the Old Testament. The first battle is, as I mentioned last time, the issue of false gods, of syncretism, of worshiping perhaps the true God, Yahweh, but then worshiping other gods as well, and then ultimately not even worshiping Yahweh, but worshiping false deities. But here, this one is very much like it, and it's the worship of idols, the making of idols, and it was constantly a problem in the Old Testament. The first clear violation that we get of the Ten Commandments, we get in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. We're going to talk more about that in a few moments. But uh, this was the first time that they had broken one of the uh, commandments of God. In this case, they were worshiping, so they believed Yahweh by means of an idol, the golden calf. So throughout the Old Testament time, this was a constant battle. Now, Charles Hodge gave us this definition of idolatry. Idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. In the worship of the true God by images. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, wrote this. In its Christian application, this means we are not to make use of any visual or pictorial representations of the triune God or of any person of the Trinity for the purposes of Christian worship. The commandment thus deals not with the object of our worship, but with the manner of it. What it tells us is that statues, and pictures of the one whom we worship are not to be used as an aid to worshiping him. So that's in J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. But Packer goes into more depth in this very issue and gets himself into hot water and controversy. And I think it's a very fascinating study, especially in this day and age with Mel Gibson's movie, uh, Passion, raising questions concerning the second commandment. 
Packer goes on to say this, this categorical statement rules out not simply the use of pictures and statues which depict God as an animal, but also the use of pictures and statues which depict him as the highest created thing we know, a man. It also rules out the use of pictures and statues of Jesus Christ as a man, although Jesus Christ himself was and remains man. For all pictures and statues, statues uh, necessarily are made after the likeness of ideal manhood as we conceive it and therefore come under the ban which the commandment imposes. Historically, Christians have <clears throat> differed as to whether the second commandment forbids the use of pictures of Jesus for purposes of teaching and instruction in Sunday school classes, for instance. And the question is not an easy one to settle. But there is no room for doubting that the commandment obliges us to disassociate our worship, both public and private, from all pictures and statues of Christ, no less than from pictures and statues of his Father. Thus says J.I. Packer. Now, not all evangelicals have agreed with this. Uh, in England, where he was writing, in the Anglican Church, there are all kinds of holdovers from Catholicism in which there are pictures of Jesus everywhere. Our own church has, until recently, had pictures of Jesus uh, in various places, and I think there still are some up on the walls. And so it's an interesting question that Packer raises. Uh, I don't know that I can fully resolve all of these things. I know, uh, for, for me, this is a personal question. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and everywhere you would turn, there would be statues of saints and, and pictures of Jesus or of the Holy Family. Up on the crucifix, there's a picture of, of Christ with a crown of, of thorns, and uh, this, these images were around us all the time. And I was actually delighted when I became a Christian to turn away from that whole manner of worship. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments of the Second Commandment, you should note the sweeping nature of this prohibition. In the New American Standard, verse 4 reads this way, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. That's a very sweeping statement. Nothing in heaven above and the earth beneath or the waters can represent God accurately. Nothing whatsoever. Now, as I've mentioned uh, a moment ago, this issue has come to the fore and there's a lot of debate on the internet and among other uh, sources about whether movies like The Passion uh, break the, the second commandment. When we were recently at um, John Piper's conference during a, a Q&A session, uh, he was asked this very question. Does a movie like this about Christ break the second commandment? If you get an actor playing Jesus, for example, up on the cross, etc., or other actors dealing with this. Is this a breaking of the Ten Commandments? I kind of extended it in a recent staff discussion. I said, let's heat it up here, and let's have a little controversial debate and see if we can work this thing out, especially since I'm preaching on the Second Commandment this coming Sunday. You folks need to help me out here. All right? In the first and second century, during the time of persecution of the Christians, they were commanded to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. And if they did, then they were seen to be good Roman citizens. And if, and if not, they'd be executed. And many Christians refused to do this, saying that they could not worship uh, a false god. And they refused to burn the pinch of incense. Now, the temptation was always to be an actor, you see. You're going to burn the pinch of incense on the outside. But on the inside, you're going to refrain. And so there's a dichotomy there. And that way you could kind of slide on by and yet at the same time maintain your uh, Christian witness so people believe. Uh, many were refusing to make this sacrifice 
and would rather die than even burn this little amount of incense to the emperor. Now the question I posed before the staff is, uh, could you play an actor who was worshiping Jesus in a film? Could you bow down and worship uh, you know, an actor, let's say you were playing Thomas, saying, my Lord and my God, uh, could you do this? And we had an interesting discussion. Someone said, well, no, it's a different thing. See, back then, what it meant was you were turning your back on Christ, and it meant a great deal, whereas here in the film, it's a different question. John Piper went so far as to say that, this is a quote now, God broke the second commandment when he sent his son in the image of sinful man to be a sin offering. Now, that's a very strong statement, and it just shows the care that you have to take when you're in a Q&A session, and uh, you haven't had all your lines written out ahead of time. You need to be careful about these things. But for me, I think the issue is this. We are not to bow down to anything that comes up out of our own imaginations. I think it's very significant that the Bible never gives us a visual description of Jesus. And you know why? Because it really doesn't make a difference, does it? Does it matter how tall he was or how short, whether he had a beard or not, the color of his skin? Do, do any of these things matter? I think we could rightly say that if they did matter, we would have had a description of Jesus. But they do not matter. And so therefore, I would make a distinction between something that's like a portrait of Jesus that becomes a focus of people's attention and those things in books that are just describing visually his actions. Although I do say I like the, the children's artwork in which you never see the face of Jesus, but just some shape or whatever acting these things out. Whatever you decide about this thing one way or another, don't underestimate the importance of the question of idolatry today. In 1 John 5.21, it finishes there, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is still an issue for us today. J.I. Packer says, when you think of idolatry, do you think of, of uh, stone-faced, cruel images on some distant island with people, natives groveling before it or a totem pole or something like that? If you keep it that far away from you, you will neglect to protect yourself from idolatry that even now can creep into your heart. Now, as I said, this was an old issue and a very deep one for the Israelites. The Israelites' first breaking of the Ten Commandments, the account is written in Exodus 32. Turn there, if you would, Exodus 32, 1 through 10. And this is the making of the golden calf. It says there, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. 
This is the incredible uh, breaking of the second commandment so shortly after it was given by God. Understand that the Ten Commandments were given by God's word verbally, and then Moses was to receive the tablets on which they were written. So that's the two steps, and very clearly it says here, they have so quickly departed from what I commanded them. He had already commanded them this second commandment, that they should not make an idol. Now let's analyze this golden calf and its idolatry, I think, in its first stage. That is, worshiping the true God in a false way. At least that was what was going on in Aaron's mind. He was trying to make a physical representation of the true God, Yahweh, who brought them up out of Egypt. Aaron's motive was to celebrate, I think, I'm guessing now, doesn't say in the text, but perhaps to celebrate God's might and power. You know, a bull is a very strong animal. A young bull, like a calf, has length of days before it, and so it's a picture of, of strength and power and might. The gold, perhaps, represents purity and perfection. So it's a symbol, perhaps, of, of God's might, it's his pure power in taking uh, Israel out of Egypt. Uh, I don't think that Aaron was trying to dishonor God, but by doing this he actually did greatly dishonor uh, the Lord, and he abased his worship in the mud when he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It says in Psalm 106, 19 and 20, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of bull that eats grass. I mean, it's very clear the disdain with which the psalmist has uh, them for what they did. They made an exchange, and that's a very important term that Paul picks up on in Romans 1. An exchange of the worship of the true God for an idol. Now what's wrong with this? What's wrong with worshiping the true God by means of something you make with your hands? Well, first of all, they limit God's attributes to only one, perhaps, in this case, power. They're going to zero in on God's power, but what about his mercy? What about his compassion? What about his patience and long-suffering? What about his justice? What about his wrath? What about his holiness? What about his omnipresence and his omniscience? What about all of his other attributes? And how could you make a representation of all of these attributes with something uh, that you can see with your eyes, something physical in this world? They're limiting God to perhaps only one attribute. All of his other uh, attributes are left off. And so the golden calf cannot accurately depict all that the scripture tells us that God is. Secondly, in the very attribute in which they're seeking to honor God, namely his power and strength, they abase him to the ground. Why so? Well, first of all, obviously, God is infinitely more powerful than a calf. And so you take this almighty God who can do anything by the word of his power, who can create worlds and stars, and because of his great power and mighty strength, none of the stars is missing, and you lower it down to the level of a calf? Well, certainly a calf has immense muscles, but the Lord God created the calf. And so it's a great abasing even in the very attribute that they're trying to celebrate. Thirdly, the calf brings with it some baggage, doesn't it? Because we've interacted with calves before. I was in Kenya once, I'll never forget this, we were driving along a very rough road, and all of a sudden there was a, a cow in the middle of the road. And we couldn't move, I mean that's a huge, huge animal, and there it stood, and it was chewing its cud, looking straight ahead. So we came up right near it, and it didn't move. So we're kind of calling out to it, and it wouldn't move. So we honked the horn, and it kind of jumped a little bit, and then it turned and looked at us chewing the cud. 
What a dumb animal. I mean, there was just nothing going on upstairs. I'm not trying to insult the poor calf, but it just doesn't have much going on upstairs. And people who know cows and calves know that. It's a stupid animal. And so the calf brings with it some baggage. That's the very thing I think that the psalmist was picking up on in Psalm 106. They exchange their glory for an image of a bull that eats grass. And you know what eventually happened? A little five-year-old Kenyan came with a stick and swatted it on its hindquarters and whoop, off it went. And so a little five-year-old boy can control this mighty calf. How can we take that calf and liken it to God, who is a king, who rules over all things? The calf brings with it some baggage. And fourthly, the Israelites were denying some key attributes of God which can never be depicted with anything you make with your hands. For example, God's self-existence. I am who I am. I don't need to be created, but I myself have created all things. To what then will you compare me? It says in Isaiah 46.5. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? And thus also we see the holiness of God. He's high above all of his physical creation. There's nothing like him in the universe. You can't compare him to anything. And so you can't find anything in the heavens above or in the earth beneath or the waters below that are like God completely. Now the creation is somewhat of a reflection of God. Romans 1 tells us that by looking at the creation, we can learn something of God's invisible attributes, his divine power and mighty nature and his holiness and other things by looking, but there is nothing that represents it, nothing perfectly. And then thirdly, God's spirituality. God is a spirit. He's a spirit being, and he's not physical. He's, he's immaterial. I believe, of course, that Jesus took on a human body, but Jesus was God before he had a human body. And so therefore, how are you going to represent God's spirituality with an idol? So the entire thing, and this is, as I said, the best case scenario, Aaron trying to honor the true God with an idol, it fails completely and is actually very devastating. Well, what then of the worship of false gods by means of idols? This is even more terrible. There is a, a triple dishonor of this kind of idolatry. First, that we reject the true and only God, our glory and joy. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, My people have committed <clears throat> two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so we turn our backs on the true God. We worship a false God when we worship by means of idols. Secondly, in those two things that he says in Jeremiah, they've made broken cisterns for themselves. This is a great problem with idolatry. To start out with your own imagination and concoct or craft something that you will eventually uh, worship. This is a reversal of the entire thing. You make God the clay and you are the potter. When the scripture says exactly the opposite, he is the potter and we are the clay. He shaped us and made us, but now here we're turning the whole thing around. This is done, I think, uh, d displayed brilliantly in uh, Isaiah 44, 12 through 17. It says there, the blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that, he may, that it may dwell in a shrine. 
He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he, he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire and over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. I mean, it's clear what Isaiah is doing there. He's saying, How can this be? How can we take with our own hands, out of our own imagination, and make an item that we bow down to and we worship? In the end, thirdly, we actually end up worshiping demons. Because the devil will pick up on the idol. And especially as the idol is passed on from generation to generation, and the children grow up, and there's a whole taboo and system of worship around the idol, and they will be infected with this worship, and they will be afraid even perhaps to touch it because it's all they've ever known. And then the, the demons come around it and it becomes a form of demonic worship. They may even do certain supernatural things at certain points in history to convince the people of their, of their supreme power. And so this idol gets passed on from generation to generation. This is my take on what it means when it says later in the commandment that he punishes or visits the sins of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation. I think that is specifically tied to the idolatry. When the idol is passed on from generation to generation, it takes on, dare I say, a life of its own. And so the people grow up honoring it and worshiping it because it's all that they've ever known. In effect, God has, in Romans 1, given them over to this false worship, and it becomes its own punishment. But that demons actually impersonate idols is established in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, it says, The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. And then in 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And then finally, idolatry tends to lead to immorality. If you look at what happened with the Israelites uh, at the time of the golden calf, not only did they bow down and worship, but they ate and drank and indulged in revelry. Now, what was involved in that revelry must have been uh, sexual immorality because in 1 Corinthians 10, it makes it very, very clear, the link between the two. And in Corinth, this was well established. You would go to these shrines where there were these idols and there would be temple uh, prostitutes and there would be immorality. And the people would eat meat sacrificed to idols and there would be a whole fleshly, selfish indulgence. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Now, you'd say to me, what is the threat of this today? Why the New Testament warnings? We can see this as an Old Testament issue. Why the New Testament warnings? Well, because the impulse toward idolatry is still in our hearts. The impulse is still there to worship some created thing rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's still in our hearts. 
And so while we may not craft something with our hands, still the tendency is there. Is there any difference between that and somebody, let's say, crafting a career and boasting in it and making it the focus of their entire life so that they build a resume and build uh, with them their own hands, so to speak, achievement after achievement, which they, in effect, bow down and worship because it's the total focus of their lives? I don't think so, because frankly, it says in the New Testament that greed is idolatry. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death, therefore, greed, which is idolatry, and because of these things, the wrath is coming. And so we have to be on our guard, it says in Scripture, against any form of greed, any form of attachment or covetousness or yearning for something physical or material that's made in this world. We have to watch out for it lest we be drawn into this sin of idolatry. Now, why is the reason, what's the reason given in the command? Because our God, it says, is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. It says later that his name is jealousy. Interesting. Our God's name is jealousy. That this is still true of God is, tr is clearly taught in the book of James, and we'll close there. Look with me at James chapter 4. <clears throat> Throughout the Old Testament, there are depictions of the jealousy of God, especially with the marriage analogy. Uh, God, the bridegroom, and Israel, the spouse. And there's a, a, a union there spiritually, and he is extremely jealous and angry when Israel turns to other gods and worships them, as a husband would be if his wife behaves like Gomer did uh, with Hosea. And so there's that picture again and again of the jealousy of God. But that is still true today, is taught very plainly in James chapter 4. Now in James chapter 4, uh, verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now look what it says in verse 4. You adulterous people. Interesting that that word should crop up there. Adulterous people. This is the same idea from the Old Covenant. Anything that draws your heart away from the worship of the true God has the tendency or the pull toward spiritual adultery. And so it says, you adulterous people, don't you know what that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now look at verse 5. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now I cannot overstate the strength of the words used in James here. Frequently the word envies is translated lusts. But it has to do with an intense yearning and desire. That is the nature of this, the Holy Spirit who is within you. He's jealous over you. Jealous over your affections. Jealous over what it is you want and yearn for and covet. Jealous over whether you're a friend of the world or not. Jealous over you, just as God was jealous over Israel. He's not changed. And we are the bride, we are the bride of Christ, are we not? And he is our bridegroom. And so it must be that we have to be on our guard against any form of idolatry, whether we actually end up crafting it uh, with our hands or a Swiss craftsman makes the Omega watch for us and we covet that. Whatever it is we're yearning for and lusting for can become an idol. 
So be on our guard against all form of idolatry. This is what we're called to do. But remember how I began. The beauty of the new covenant is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and has actually freed us from idolatrous worship. What do we get instead? We get the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to worship the true God in spirit and in truth. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.